Our text is Genesis 3, and I'll read verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the, cherubim at the east end of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And I pray that you would uh, open ears to hear uh, your voice. And I pray, Lord, that I would be able to share uh, from the heart and that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide. We ask you to be with us now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, it might not seem like it, but actually the title of the message is marriage, but it's marriage east of Eden. And so that's why I referred to this text. They were booted out of the Garden of Eden to the east. Now, uh, most of you probably would understand why marriage is on my mind. In recent weeks, it seems like that's all that's been on my mind. And so uh, Monday night, we had that ceremony. It was wonderful. Uh, this next Saturday, we're having this uh, seminar on courtship, and so I'm looking forward to that. And because it was on my heart, when, when we decided to put Galatians in the, in the bulletin, I hadn't really thought through uh, whether I was comfortable with that. And so that night I read through it, and I was fine with it. But then the next day, just boom, I needed to do this message. So hopefully it works out. Now, there are three major points. For once, I have a three-point sermon. That's kind of a classic that you're supposed to do, but uh, actually it works out that way today. So first, marriage as intended by God at creation. So in other words, marriage by design. How did God make it in creation? So second, marriage as affected by the fall of man and woman. And then third, marriage as a tool of sanctification today in all of this post-fall time. So first, marriage as intended at creation. Let me, and I'm going to begin in Genesis 2, and I'll actually progress through Genesis 2, even though I read from Genesis 3 where they got booted out. But I want to read various snippets of Genesis 2 and 3. So I'll start at verse 8 in Genesis 2. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to skip to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now, I want you to think about this text in a way that you've probably never thought about it before. I want you to think about the fact that God has just hired Adam to do a job for him. He's his employee. And so think about this job that he just gave Adam. It is a very desirable job. It's very, very cushy. He's in this wonderful garden, and it's essentially been designed by God. It's protected by God, and because we'll see that later when he gets booted out of it. But so he gives, God, uh, he gives Adam an extremely uh, good job, 
and the job was in a great environment. Uh, all this summer, I've had a young man working in our team, and he made a presentation to our CIO this past week. And one of the things that he remarked on experience gained is in this picture. He says he got to work in a cubicle for a big company. And if you don't recognize the picture, that's from the movie Office Space, sitting in his cubicle with his red stapler. But that's what our intern got to look forward to this summer, and he got that first experience. Now, I don't share with you the other slide he had about what he wished was different. And he said he wished he'd gotten to spend more time outside. Now, he walked to our Monday night ceremony from Creighton University the other night. And I don't know if you remember, but it was like 120 degrees, real feel. And he walked two miles. And so he got a lot of time to spend outside, I think more than, more than he wanted. <laughs> but so that is the job that God has given Adam. It's a very cushy job in this beautiful garden. Now, we know that at that time, there was this vapor canopy co covering the earth. There was no rain. Rain was unheard of. And so I think it's logical to presume that the whole earth was just this beautiful paradise, not just the Garden of Eden, everything. The whole earth was wonderful. It's, it's, it's just the most beautiful place on earth you can imagine constantly, every day. And it's like we got used to it in Southern California. It, you d it's just so nice all the time that you just get to take it for granted. Whereas here, the few days of spring that are really nice, you really learn to appreciate, don't you? Whereas out there, they all just take it for granted. So we've got something over on them. On nice days, we can really, really enjoy it. And out there, they just have grown brazen to it. They just don't even care. So you get an advantage over them. Now, God hires Adam. And let me give you a little bit further here what he tells him to do. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, seems harsh, but every company that hires people lays down rules. Every company. Now, at my company, when I started 20 years ago, I had to wear a tie every day of the week. And then eventually, they instituted a new policy. They said, you don't have to ever wear a tie, and on Fridays, you get to wear jeans and T-shirts. And then about three years later, suddenly a memo came out and saying, no more jeans and T-shirts ever. So someone had messed up, ruined it for the rest of us. But now I don't have to wear a tie to work. Now Josh, he works at a company that's much more lax than ours. But I'll bet he has to wear pants. <laughs> All companies have rules. And, and, as, and as, as loose as Josh could be, I'll bet he has to wear pants to work. So every company has rules. And God instituted rules in his garden. And so this is a rule that he made. You're not allowed to eat of that particular tree. Eat of all the rest of the trees. Just don't eat of that one tree. So now, this gets better. Let's read on. Verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, was Adam's job so overwhelming to him that he couldn't get it done? Is that there in the text? It says in the text why God gave him a helper. Why? It is not good for man to be alone. So God, Adam's employer, was such a good employer that he didn't want his lone employee to be lonely. And so he gave him another employee. He gave him even a direct report to him. And so God is a good boss, very, very kind boss. What companies hire another employee just to keep their other company that's lonely, the other, their other employee company? That guard, oh, he's so lonely, he's over there by himself. I'm going to hire another guard just to spend the time with him. 
you know? So see, Garden of Eden, Inc. was the place to work. They don't get any better than at this job. So now, being sinless, Adam is also a great boss. God's a great owner of a company. Adam is a great boss. And being sinless, Eve is a great employee. They don't get any better. Right? So they had perfection at this company. It was a perfect company to work for. The employees with direct reports, oh, you're treating your employees really well. They really love their job. The employees that work for you, they, they love their job. They're, they're able to serve just selflessly. You know, they're never going to take advantage of me. They're never going to abuse me. So now, it gets better. Note that Adam also gets fringe benefits in this relationship. Eve does too, but they're able to have relations with one another as well. And so not only does God make, Adam, her, uh, make Eve the direct report to Adam, they're allowed to have these intimate relations. Now, we know that marriage is involved, but bear with me. And so now, Adam really is more than her boss, right? Because, yes, she's an employee, but it's not like he has been given permission to ever fire her, and it's not like he ever would. So I, I propose that there is a difference. You've got employee, you've got what we'll come to talk about that's wife, but here in the middle you've kind of got this bond servant. And I don't mean that in a bad way, I mean that in a good way. In a way where the servant loves the boss, kind of like where the, the bond servant in the Old Testament willingly wants to stay with the master and they pound the all through the ear in order to mark him as that. That's what I'm thinking about. It's totally selflessness. She loves Adam. She is willing to be his, his employee. No reservations about that at all for life. And the same for him. He's willing to have this responsibility over her for life. That's the environment that we're talking about. So now, after I've used that illustration of the business, let's go to marriage because that's what we need to talk about. We go on in Genesis. Let's read verses 19 and 20. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. Now, in verse 18, a problem is stated. It's a problem statement. Like in any company, you have to solve the problems that you're dealt with. So verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So that's the problem. The solution, I will make him a helper comparable to him. And then we have what I just read, where Adam names the animals. Does that seem odd to you? That we've injected the naming of the animals into here? Well, it, it's really not odd. It's right in place. It's exactly what God wanted. And what did he want? He wanted to educate his sole employee on a problem that he had at his company. And so we have the first training program instituted here also. And this is a good training program. This is a training problem where they have you discover the problem for yourself. Adam names all these animals, and then he looks at God, and he says, I don't have one of these. <laughs> I don't have a mate. Where's my mate? So see, he's aware of the problem now too. And it's through his own recognition. God hasn't said, Adam, you've got a problem. He lets Adam figure it out for himself. Now he goes to God, God, I have a problem. So then God has already purposed how he'll solve it, and he begins to solve it. So 
Here at Garden of Eden, Inc., we now are introducing this female and, and all this stuff. Now, let me go on again. Genesis 2, 21 to 24. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So now we come really to the solemnity of marriage. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when I look at this, I sometimes think, where did the marriage covenant come from? Was this marriage? Because I don't see it occurring, do you? I mean, we know that God brought Eve uh, or Adam here, opened him up, took a rib, formed Eve, brought them together. And so was this marriage? Was this a marriage covenant? And yes, it was a marriage covenant, but no tuxedos, no gowns, no best man, no maid of honor, no ring exchange. You know, we just can't relate to this as a wedding ceremony, right? It's so different. But, you know, they're not our culture. Our American culture didn't always even do what we're, I'm saying now. So the marriage ceremony itself just differs across cultures and has forever. But yet, the act itself, the solemnity of marriage, is embedded here. And this is what marriage is all about. It's this formality of marriage. Let me read to you something that Jesus said in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall be one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus refers to Adam and Eve's uh, ceremony here as a wedding ceremony. He acknowledges it right there in his answer to the Pharisees. Yes, Adam and Eve were married by God the Father in that garden. And so that is our proof that there was a wedding ceremony that took place. It wasn't just... Uh, them being together because there were only man and woman on earth. No, God brought them together through formality. And there was drama and poetry and passion in this ceremony. I mean, he had to give up a rib to get this wife. That's drama, right? Passion, blood. So now, note also, I want you to note too, that this is an arranged marriage. God has done this. God, Adam's father. Adam's father, God, saw a need in Adam's life, and he went out and he fulfilled that need. He solved the problem for his son. Now, I'm not saying that we'll all do that to this degree, God knows best, but I am saying that there is obviously a role for parents then in finding mates for their children, as this upcoming Saturday conference is kind of proof. So he went out and found a suitable mate. And note the training program that he'd run him through. In part, it was to have Adam become aware of the fact that he lacked a wife, yet it's also to show him that these are all unsuitable as a wife. So again, it was God educating Adam in what does make a good wife. They at least have to be human. That's all he had to work with at that point. 
But now later in Proverbs 7, you have Solomon educating his sons on what it means to pick a wife. And so you go through much more practical related to us reasons and, and things to look at for a wife. Pro the end of Proverbs as well, 30:31. So now that is the solemnity of marriage. So we're talking about a ceremony that God instituted for our benefit in the garden. Now I want to talk to you about the beauty of marriage. And even east of Eden, as we now are outside the garden, we can see beauty in marriage. And I want to share with you one thing. In, Forty years ago, in 1971, a man by the name of Paul Stuckey wrote a song. And this song has become extremely popular. It's in the public domain. I believe he put it in the public domain. It's entitled, There is Love. And let me read you the first two stanzas. He is now to be among you at the calling of your hearts. Rest assured this troubadour is acting on his part. The union of your spirits here has caused him to remain. For whenever two or more of you are gathered in his name, there is love. Well, a man shall leave his mother and a woman leave her home. They shall travel on to where the two shall be as one. As it was in the beginning is now until the end. Woman draws her life from man and gives it back again. And there is love. So we see this being played out in our day, even though we're east of Eden, even by so many couples who don't know God, who don't love God, who don't trust God, who might even fight against God, but they embrace God's designed order. And that's because it's the right thing to do. And they do it because they're not fighting against God quite that much. Now, I want to share another thing. Now, this we all know as what? The wedding song. So its original name is There is Love, but everybody now knows it as the wedding song because it's so common in weddings. Another thing, when I was a boy, uh, about the time this was written, probably 1971, I had a friend who lived up the street, and I remember being at his house and seeing a plaque on the wall, and it had something to do with the creation of woman. I can't read it exactly, and I, don't, I couldn't find it quickly, but yet it talks about a woman being made from the rib of man, the side of man, not from a bone up here to dominate him, not from a bone down here to be trampled by him, but from his side. And what I learned yesterday morning is that this poem is predicated on a commentary by a Puritan back in the 1600s. And let me read you the full quote. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Matthew Henry commentary on Genesis 2.22. Isn't it wonderful to find such things that, are, that fill our culture and yet find it rooted in Orthodox Christianity? So now, let's see about point two now. We're on to point two. So this is marriage as affected by the fall. So we've talked about the design of marriage, and that's a wonderful, beautiful thing, the solemnity of it, the beauty of it. So now we're gonna talk about the fall. Now we know that the fall also is referred to as the curse, right? The curse that is upon mankind. So when we read in Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the curse that was placed upon man should he disobey, and he disobeyed, and the curse fell on him. But now, not only is death part of the curse, but 
we also will get to part of the punishment that God levies upon man, woman, and the serpent, right? So in addition to death, there are these other nuances. And God really doesn't repeat himself. When we get to the curse, he doesn't state it explicitly. He states it with Adam implicitly. So now, the curse on Eve. On, on Eve. Let's start at Genesis 3. Now, I'm going to skip a lot of things. I'm going to skip up to verse 16, which means we skip a lot, actually. We skip the temptation. We skip the actual sin, the fall. We skip the blame shifting that occurs for at least Adam and Eve. The serpent's like, yeah, sue me. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then you also have the punishment of the serpent that I'll skip. And then we get to the punishment of Eve, and that's where we start. Genesis 3.16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, let me clarify one thing. In all the punishments that God levies out upon the serpent, upon man and woman, none are positive. They're all negative punishments. So when this says, your desire shall be for your husband, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. Her desire is to usurp her husband's position. Her desire is to displace him as the leader in this couple. So I want to dig into this a little bit more, though. I want to paraphrase first. Eve and all women will suffer in this way. Increased sorrow in life. This is an explicit penalty upon women. Ex increased sorrow in life. Increased pain in childbirth. And the third, an unpleasant, undesired subjection to her husband's rule. Now, this is the penalty as a fallen creature. I'm not getting at the God's mercy and grace that can ameliorate the effect of that punishment, but I am stating the punishment clearly. That's what God did, and all women feel it, just as all men feel the punishment upon man, and this is the punishment upon man. Starting at verse 17, then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. Those words are, whew, you know, they send shivers down your spine, don't they? I mean, God is very angry with his only employee. He's about to get fired. Now, I want to point out one thing, and, I, and I, I, I give credit to this type of thing. Now, I was in the service, so I know, I know how to stand in front of a guy and get chewed out because that's what they teach you in boot camp. I think they probably had a list in the DI's office that had a checkbox for everybody that gets chewed out to make sure that everybody gets at least chewed out a few times while you're in boot camp. And so I had my share of getting chewed out, standing there having to take it. You know, his smoky is right there on your head and he's, his spittle is flying and you want to flinch and you want to turn your head, but you dare not because then you know it's going to get much, much worse. So you just stand there and take it. You take the chewing out. Eve got chewed out, right? 29 words worth of chewing out. Adam got chewed out. 99 words worth of chewing out. I think it's fair to point that out. He's more angry with Adam than he is with Eve. He's longer in his presence with his smoky in his face with spittle flying. So Adam's, you know, he's that attention. So he's having to deal with it. Now, 
there's something also that differs between Eve and Adam. With Eve's punishment, it was all her and all womankind. Whereas with Adam, we've got three facets of it, three different uh, uh, reflections of it. First, you've got creation being cursed. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. So with Adam's sin came the cursing of all the earth. It wasn't with the woman's sin. It was with Adam's sin. And also, in toil you shall eat it, and then death. And then he closes within the sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you shall return. So he re-emphasizes the fact that you've brought that penalty that I had threatened upon you and your wife. You've killed everybody. So now he gets the punishment of harder labor. He gets the credit for having destroyed creation's sinless perfection. He gets the credit for having this be something that he just cannot undo, Right? He's guilty. He did it. He's at fault, and God holds him accountable. Now, let me get, read a phrase about what could have been. This is, again, Matthew Henry. This is, now, he was commenting on Genesis 3.16 here, the curse upon the woman, and so it has an emphasis upon the woman. If man had not sinned, he would always have ruled with wisdom and love. And if the woman had not sinned, she would have always obeyed with humility and meekness. And then the dominion would have been no grievance, but our own sin and folly make our yoke heavy. If Eve had not eaten forbidden fruit herself and tempted her husband to eat it, she would never have complained of her subjection. Therefore, it ought never to be complained of, though at times harsh. But sin must be complained of that made it so. Those wives who not only despise and disobey their husbands, but domineer over them, do not consider that they not only violate a divine law, but thwart a divine sentence. And so Matthew Henry is reminding us that we are to blame. We, men and women, are still to blame. We suffer what uh, Adam and Eve brought upon us, but we also do it because we follow in their footsteps. They are our parents, and we do follow after them in our disobedience. Now, I want to skip ahead to uh, verse 22 in Genesis 3 and read uh, through the end, and this is exactly what I'd read earlier at the beginning. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Not only is Adam fired from his cushy job, security escorts him out. And security stands at the door and bars him from coming back in. God was a great boss but he's a formidable former boss. So you don't want to mess with God, and, and unfortunately, Adam did. Adam and Eve lost. Now, Adam lost not only his job, right? And the security that comes with that. So he lost the security that he had with that job, but he lost their home as well. He was ejected from their home. His position was such that he was granted a home by God in addition to having the job, and he lost both of them in one minute. And 
Garden of Eden, Inc. was the only employer at, on the planet at that time. So it isn't like he could go down the street and look for other work, look for other homes. No, that was it. And he got ejected. He got thrown out onto the street. But there were no streets. He got thrown out into the wilderness. There were no streets or streetlights. Now, I want you to think about that, you know, not in a humorous way, but think about you being Adam or Eve and you having just been chewed out by God for your disobedience and ejected from paradise. They did it. I mean, th they were enduring this just as we would have to endure this. Some of us have had something like this happen to us. We've like been fired from a job. We've had really bad things happen to us. But imagine this. Imagine being tossed out of the garden. Imagine how dark it was on the earth at that time, even with the moon at night and the stars in heaven. Imagine the darkness. I mean, we've all probably been out when street lights are out or, or power is out, and it's so dark and inky black. That's what their world was. And so they're having to endure this, this time, this horrible time, and the fear that goes along with it. Now, they can choose to trust in God, to return to him, or they can choose to kind of wallow in their own fear. And just like all humans ever since Adam and Eve, they probably did a little bit of both. All Christians since them have had to follow in their footsteps. Now, I can assure you, at least, well, I, I shouldn't assure you, but I can say, I can bet you, and, and I, Tabitha told me never say that, but, but, but I would wager that I know one of the things that they did in the first few days after this happened, right? Because it started in, right there in front of God. Adam, what have you done? It wasn't my fault. She did it. Eve, what have you done? It wasn't my fault. The serpent deceived me. And so then, out here, Adam, Eve, why did you do that? Why did you have to do that? You were there. You did it too. But I didn't, even, I didn't even know you were doing that. Why did you do it? I mean, I didn't even know that you had the apple until you handed it to me. Oh, well, you're the leader. Are you just going to blame me? Lead. If you're the leader, lead. What, is blaming me leading? <laughs> how often, how often did Adam and Eve fight about what had happened in the garden? Could you imagine? They knew sinlessness. They knew what they'd lost, and now they're in sin. And they don't have any books. They don't have any Christian speakers or sermons. So, I mean, how are they going to grow and know this stuff? And, and they've probably also got demonic influences at this point because who is it that tricked them? Who is it that was in the serpent? So, see, they have an uphill battle to regain the, the, the uh, godly living that they had had for nothing just the day before. And so how long did they really fight and blame one another before they finally forgave until they finally let it go, let the old wounds heal, decided to en embrace God's forgiveness and move forward? I, I, I would bet, I would wager that it took a while. They didn't just get sanctified like that, like we all want to. I don't think they had it any better than us. We want it like this. They want it, wanted it like that, and they didn't get it. God is training them just like he trains us to seek it, to want it, to will for it. Now, this brings us to the third point. 
So first we had marriage as intended by God, marriage as corrupted by man, and now we've got marriage as a tool of sanctification. So see, was God surprised by what Adam and Eve did? Of course not. Of course he was not surprised. He was not taken by surprise. When, when we Reformed people tend to talk about supralapsarianism and infralapsarianism, what are we arguing about? Are we arguing about the fact that God knew? No. All we're arguing about is the order in which he ordained certain things to occur. We're silly that way. I mean, we're, we're really on, uh, trying to argue about the number of angels on the head of a pin by that point, I think. But we do that for good reason. We do that because we know God knew about it. We know that he designed Adam and Eve, and he knew they were going to fall. He knew they were going to disobey. And so what I propose to you is this. We know marriage will not exist in heaven, right? Because Jesus confirmed that in the New Testament. In heaven, there is no marriage nor giving of hand in marriage. So we know that Adam and Eve were the only couple who ever lived in marital bliss for an instant. They had it for that long, and then they lost it. So all we'll have is a shadow of that on this earth. So I want you to lower your expectations if you think you will achieve marital bliss on this earth, because you won't. You can achieve tremendous joy but the perfection that Adam and Eve enjoyed for an instant will, is not ours and will not be ours. It's not part of God's design for us. So I just want you to know that. Now, Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, right? And so as the perfect sinless couple, they gave in to temptation. God knew they would. This came as no surprise. So marriage is designed to be able to endure sin. By design, God has made us as humans, fallen humans, to be able to get through marriages successfully. So that's another premise. While it might not be heaven, we can accomplish victory. Let me read Hebrews, starting in, verse five, uh, starting in chapter 5, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 8 and 9. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Two things here amaze me, and, and I would assume they amaze you, I don't know. First, Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Being perfect, being God himself, he learned obedience through suffering. And he was perfected through it. So there are two things there that amaze you. Now, we know that Jesus, in his, in his uh, uh, deity, was perfect, could not have learned. But yet, in his humanity, he was perfected. As a, even as a sinless human, he was perfected by God through the suffering that he endured. And he was then regarded as obedient. He became that obedient son. So now, he was perfected. And what I wanted to share with you is the fact that if this is true of Jesus, that if he achieves this through his work on this earth, it's kind of true of us also in a lesser sense. That this is the same thing that we accomplished through our suffering. 
So we learn obedience through our suffering. God perfects us through that suffering. Now marriage brings many pleasures, many joys. Otherwise, I wouldn't have wanted us to celebrate Monday. We celebrate those things. And yet there were things early on when I originally had that idea, I was thinking I would share a lot. But that's the only thing Tabitha was concerned about. She's like, are you going to mention anything about this, this, or that? I said, no. She says, good, don't. <laughs> so see, I at first imagined myself being up there and waxing all eloquent, and I just thought, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm just going to do this because I didn't want to screw it up. I wanted it to be honoring to Tabitha, not something that she would be afraid of. So now, love for our partner in marriage makes us vulnerable to being hurt by them. And so just as I could have easily hurt Tabitha Monday if I'd chosen to speak out of turn, that made her vulnerable. Our having that whole ceremony makes you vulnerable. Declaring your love for someone on this earth makes you vulnerable. But what's the alternative? The alternative is to not be vulnerable at all, right? Be an island. Totally isolate yourself from other human beings. Try to be so tough that no one can ever hurt you again. Because that type of desire only comes from having been hurt so badly that you never want to be that vulnerable anymore ever again. And yet marriage drives you right into that wall. If you refuse to be vulnerable in marriage, your marriage will not grow. You must be vulnerable to your spouse in marriage. That's the only way it will grow. And so I challenge you to make yourself vulnerable in your marriages. It's the only way you're really going to learn to love. You will get hurt. Your spouse will be insensitive to you at times. And yet there are ways to respond to that, right? What are the ways that we choose? First, let's say your spouse is insensitive to you. What's the first thing that we typically do? Nothing, right? Now, we could forgive. So we're not doing nothing if we forgive. We're forgiving. We're choosing to love them. We're choosing to look past that slight. But sometimes we do nothing and we're keeping a list. It's going on the list. That's coming out again at the end of the year. It's like, it's like these annual reviews for a company. You've made all these mistakes, and then your boss chooses to enumerate them. Instead of talking to you at the time, oh, no, it's going on my list. You know, I'm going to slam you with that in about nine months. That's when I get the chance. So foolishness, right? And so God commands us to keep close accounts. So when we would otherwise be reaching for our ledger book, he's like, no, 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 no. If you were that offended to where you're going to retain knowledge of that wrong, you must go to that person and tell them what they've done. Tell them they've hurt you. Tell them they've offended you. Give them an opportunity to repent and be forgiven. And I preached on that last December, so I'm not going to get into it anymore now. But that's the choice that you make. Now, the choice that we so often do, though, at the time, is fight. We love to fight. And if that comment hits us at just the right time, when we're in just the right bad mood, ha! Attack, right? That's what we do. Attack mode. And so you are giving in to that heart, that dark heart that we must be killing and taking control over. So when you choose to attack, you're choosing to totally ignore God, 
totally abandon the path of sanctification. You want to get even. In the movie Gladiator, it's a love, I love the movie, but I mean, it's very bloody, so I certainly don't recommend it, but uh, unless you like blood. Um, but anyway, there's this one scene where these slaves who are, who are captured and then used as gladiators, they're chained to one another. They don't even know one another yet. This is early in the movie. They're just chained to one another and thrust out into the arena. And then out in the arena, they have these professional gladiators with all this stuff, and they're not chained to one another. And so these two that are chained to one another, though, have to rapidly decide whether they regard their partner as an enemy or a friend. So we can fight together, or I can just kill you now and be done with it, right? Slash off your arm and go on and do my best to survive. And so they show an example of both. They show an example of one guy his, uh, uh, his other guy, he's just ignoring him and jerking him around, and then that guy gets killed and he slashes his arm off to continue fighting. But then you have the gladiator, the one the movie's about, he and his buddy rapidly learn how to stand side to side, have their arms be back to back, and they're fighting all their enemies. That's marriage. Think about it. The former illustration is where you regard one another as foes. Instead of viewing all the enemies that are out there trying to kill you as the enemy, you regard your mate as the enemy, the one you're bound to. And in this case, voluntarily. You've elected to put that on your wrist and be bound to that person. And yet, you at times regard them as your enemy. And so you're jerking that chain. Get over here. What are you doing over there? Why are you doing this? You know, don't you know we're going over here? So that is what I want you to see as the bad way of acting in your marriage. There is a good way. And that is where you are partners. You are friends. You are together and you oppose the enemy consistently. You're always opposing the enemy. You're never blaming your partner for any wrong that you suffer. If, if they happen to jerk their arm and it moves just at the right time and you get hurt, you, you don't regard that as them doing it intentionally. You overlook it. But if it occurs again and again, you instruct them. You say, hey, you're causing me pain here. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. So you learn to get around that, get past that. Now, Marriage does unite a couple, right? Jesus referred to it. He said, in the garden they became one. But did they fully become one is my question to you. And I would say no. They never on this earth fully become one. Marriage is the process of becoming one. The act occurred, but the ramifications of it take all your life to explore, to endure in parts, to overcome in parts, but that's what marriage is. When you become one, it's not just a physical consummation of the relationship that makes you one. It's that ongoing commitment you have to one another to be there for your spouse, to be selfless such that your spouse can be selfless as well. And selflessly, you make life together. So now, imagine you were Adam and Eve and you were ejected from the garden. What one thing could have made it worse? You Adams out there, as frustrated as you might have been with your wife, you did choose her. She ate. Yeah, she did. She took the fruit off the tree. Yeah, she did. I told her not to, but she did. And I sat there and I ate it like a fool. I partook too. I didn't say, God, she's broken. I want a new one. <laughs> no, I went with her. I chose her over God. So I'm to blame too. So now you get booted out there, and sure, you might be angry at Eve, but what if she's not with you? 
What if God had ejected each of you from the garden to totally different worlds? You're now alone in this dark, forbidding place. Now, we might argue with one another, but we are together. Adam and Eve were together, and they might not have yet known how to live together in peace, total peace and harmony with one another, but they appreciated one another. They might have fought, but they loved one another. They were there for one another, and I think the alternative is just so bleak to consider. So I want you to appreciate what you have. I want you to uh, live for the benefit of your spouse. Uh, you owe that to him or her. That's how God made marriage to be. You've chosen it. Now live with it. Make the best of it. God wants you to. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this blessing of marriage. We know that you designed it to endure our difficult times on this earth in our sinful flesh. And so we ask you to give us strength, uh, give us as husbands and wives, not only a tolerance and a toleration of one another, but a compassion on one another in the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves. I pray, Lord, that we would all have our eyes opened to what you have done and to what you are doing. We thank you for uh, our spouses, and I pray, Lord, for those that don't have them yet, that you would grant them, not the ones that would necessarily be the ones they would choose, but the ones that you would choose for them, that will make them much more faithful followers of you. And we thank you for your blessings in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.